Now let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. And we thank you for the way you've been working to help open avenues to spread this uh, message about you. We pray that you will enlighten our minds today and our hearts will be filled with your love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number two in our quarterly evangelism and witnessing. And the lesson title this week is Every Member Ministry. And if somebody read the memory text for us, which is in 1 Peter 2.9. Somebody read that for us, please. 1 Peter 2.9, memory text. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And as you hear this text, what do you hear that we are to be proclaiming? The praises of God. That's what it says, the praise of God, which means what? Means we should sing some praise songs? His character. Means that we should say praises in our prayers? His character. Well, I, I actually went to the dictionary and looked up the word praise in the dictionary. And, and the definition in the dictionary of praise is to give uh, praise is the expression of a favorable judgment or to give com- uh, commendation. Now think that through. I thought, wow. To give praise to God is to give a favorable judgment or commend him. Isn't that interesting? Rather than singing a praise song or just saying praises and prayers, that we make a judgment about him. Repetitious wrote phrases. So Yes, or repetitious wrote phrases. So if you think in this controversy that began in heaven over God's character, or you think about what's described in 2 Corinthians 10 about that we wage war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, does it give insight into what our praises really need to be? what our praises are to achieve or the purpose or function of what our praise is. Genuine praise from God's representatives is not simply singing songs or praying, praise prayers, which certainly can include that, but more significantly seems to me, as you said, revealing the truth about God's character in both our words and the way we live. And it reminded me of the third angel's message. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. We could say, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of for him to be praised, to be judged correctly, has come. Historically, what's happened is that a text has been turned to misrepresent God or judge him falsely. The hour for him to sit in an arbitrary uh, position of authority to make rules against you and make judgments against you has come. So we all live in fear and terror. When, a- when in actuality, the time has come for us to recognize him in his true character. So we are to reveal God in our lives, demonstrating to the world that his remedy changes us, heals us, transforms us, really works. And this thus brings honor to him or glory to him. Praise, uh, Fear God and give glory to him. Why? How? By living a life that reveals him. Because people are going to make judgments about him. So if we talk about Peter's metaphor then, his agents or priests... Um, become the vessels whereby his remedy, his truth, his characters is taken forward to the world so others can then make correct judgments about him. It says also, it says in the text, so that the praises, it says that you may proclaim praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. What would the darkness be referring to? Uh, Margaret says the ignorance of his character, the darkness of of the distortions about God, what would the light be? 
you know, I, it made me think of, of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Jesus is the light which lightens all men. Right? And Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus lightens us with the truth about God. So I, I think that's exactly right. Um, would anyone like to share how their view of God has changed over time and the difference that that change has made in their life? Anyone? Russell? Yes, in a nutshell, I'm no longer afraid of him. You know, 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, I was afraid of him. I used to live in fear of him, too. I'll be honest. I remember living in fear, going to bed at night, uh, afraid, praying that I forget something. What happens if I, you know, what's the prayer? Uh, uh, Say for the little kids. Sleep, I pray the Lord, my soul soul to keep. keep. I should die before I wake. Yeah, if I die before I wake. Yeah, exactly. Sleep well. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully he'll take us. Yeah. <laughs> it was scary, wasn't it? Yes. I would say what you're saying is I used to live in fear of the consequences instead of longing for the consequences. Okay, and I wouldn't even say con- I used to live in fear not of the consequence of what I'd done, but of what he would do to me for what I've done. Right. Yeah. Now I'm longing for what for the consequences of what he will do for me. Yes, it makes a big difference. Yes, thank you. This comment about, you know, bringing out of darkness and walking in light, uh, I was I was it triggered something about, you know, as a physician, it's a lot easier to make a, an accurate diagnosis, an accurate judgment with more information, with more evidence. If someone calls you up on the phone and say, hey, my whatever hurts, it's very difficult to render an accurate diagnosis. If you can subject them to x-rays or, or blood tests or, or any other studies give evidence of a problem, then it's more, it's, you can render a better judgment. A better I like diagnosis. it. It brings, brings the diagnosis to light. Yes, and as a doctor, sometimes I get frustrated because patients will call me and maybe say one thing to my staff: "Hey, I'm having trouble, uh, you know, with some some a GI upset. Uh, can, can, what, what can Doctor James do for it?" And that's it. Yeah. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? You know. So I agree with you. Complete more information, more history, more uh, more evidence. So along those lines, can anyone share? Would anyone like to share? what they have found to be effective in revealing this marvelous light into the darkness of misunderstanding about God that, that seems to be everywhere. Yes? I used to um, obey God out of fear, you know, of, uh, you know, if I didn't do what he asked, then, um, you know, I, didn't, I was afraid of the road I was headed down if I, if I went against what he asked. Um, but he slowly revealed to me that that he is trustworthy. Um, He revealed the truth that the Father is just like Jesus. Um, And that made a huge difference. I mean, I I can remember, you know, when it dawned on me that the Father and the Son are the same, there was this incredible peace that replaced the fear. And have you been able to articulate that in some way to others who haven't yet experienced that? Have you been able to share that with other people? A few times. And, and, and you're sharing your experience now. And who's to say, oh, no, you don't have more peace? See, when you share your experience, it's very powerful. They can't say that, that you don't have that experience. Yeah. Um, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, says, Too often we hear Christians lament that they are not talented enough to do anything significant for God. Well, the devil would certainly like us to think this way. The Bible tells us that all Christians have a God-given ministry. We need to know what what it is and then determine by God's grace how to use it for his glory. So, do you believe 
that, and I, here's how I phrase it, do you believe that all those who have experienced God's renewal of, of their heart have a ministry for their kingdom, for his kingdom? I do too. And I thought, well, what kind of things, uh, what kind of ministry can we do? What kind of things can we do? And I, I made a list of things, but go ahead. I was just thinking that having not grown up in the Adventist religion, I don't carry the fear and stuff that everyone, but rather carry abandonment. I'm not significant enough. You haven't answered my prayers. <clears throat> uh, you know, I did things that, um, I was at the bars a few times, <laughs> that I probably shouldn't have done, and yet now I can look at those people, now that I'm out of all that, and say, I know why they're there. I can help at that level. Okay, so you, you have empathy and understand. And there are a lot of people out there that are, that are truly empty. I have, come, have them come into my office all the time. New patient yesterday who has uh, anxiety. Uh, she had uh, a sense of no purpose, doesn't know what her life is for, has no direction, doesn't know what she's going to do. And I asked about her spirituality. And, well, I was raised to believe in God, but I don't have a real connection or knowledge of God. It's, it's a big issue. If you don't really know who you are in God's design and you don't know his purpose for your life, you're often floundering through life. Yeah. So things we can minister, I just wrote down a quick list, um, and I'm sure there's more, but things like teachers and speakers, organizers, uh, people who help, help behind the scenes, healthcare providers, technical people, writers, animators, administrators, accountants, missionaries, evangelists, builders, mechanics, electricians, plumbers, carpenters, uh, the list goes on. And my, my point is, is there any honest activity that is not useful in God's cause. No. no, that's the point. Every honest activity can be used for God's cause, can it? So, the question, what can we do with our ministry here, this, this organization, this group, to become more f- effective in spreading this light outside of this room? What can we do? Well, if you, if you notice some of you today, there's some cameras in the back. We're starting next week to webcast live. We're going to have a live webcast each week from 10.20 to 11.20 that's going to be available. Anybody can go to the website and watch this live every week. We're going to send this message. And I want to just say, I want to thank Dean and thank God for Dean because if it wasn't for Dean, we would never have really had this message go outside the room. Dean built our website. Dean came to us a few years back when we were teaching over at College Hill Church and we had a little MP3 player that we were, uh, just a little tiny thing about this big, we'd sit on a chair and record and some of you might have heard those old, old recordings and they had lots of static and they were really, really pathetic. And Dean listened to that and goes, um, you know, I, I could help with your sound and clean some of that up if you'd like. And, and yes, come on, aren't we thankful for Dean? Yes. And, and, uh, and he's, and he started by uh, building his own soundboard that he built out of scrap parts because we didn't have any money back then. So he built it out of scrap parts. And then we got a, a, a really little cheap microphone that we started using and our sound got much better. And then our ministry grew and, and we came over here and, and we were having people support us and we were able to get actually nice sound equipment. We got a shotgun mic now that we can actually pick up people in the audience. And, and then um, he's uh, re, redone our website. If you haven't been to our website in the last two weeks, Go to the website in the last two weeks. It's completely been rebuilt, and it's amazing. It's really great. And now we're going to be going live with the uh, webcasting that's going to start. And I've already gotten emails from people around uh, the, the world that are very excited that we're going to be live, that they can tap in and join with us each week. And there's a lot of people. I remember when I was in the military stationed at Fort Stewart, Georgia, there wasn't a church for 50 miles around. 
And I would have loved back then if I could have gone live each week and, and listened and participated in Graham Maxwell's class, for instance, or somebody like that. It would have been amazing. Well, we're going to open our class up now so people like that can be participants with us each week. We also, as you know, have uh, partnered with HeartWise Ministries, and our TV programming is going to start in May. And uh, HeartWise has its TV studio built. We have financially committed to support this ministry, and we're part of this ministry. So I'd like you to go out and see what your funds have helped produce, because it is the best, I can tell you, the best television studio in Chattanooga. It, it is. It, when you see it, you're going to be blown away. I've been on the sets of the local TV stations, and I've been in this set. It blows them away. It's very, very nice. So go out and see the set. Uh, One Park Place, which is 6148 Lee Highway. Everybody know where the Sam's is on Lee Highway or Sports Barn? Okay, across the Lee Highway from, from Sam's is the Sports Barn, and right next there is a three-story glass building. Okay, it's in that building on the first floor in the back, uh, just on the first floor back behind the elevator back there. It's uh, the studio back there. And we need volunteers, and some of you have already volunteered and talked with them to uh, be partners in helping on Thursday night when we started live telephone call-in television program. It's going to be one of a kind where people are going to be able to call. This is going to be broadcast into about 200 million homes, and we're going to have live uh, live uh, call-in television question-answer time, and we're going to need people to help with run the cameras, help answer the phones, those types of things. And Kathy Kylie has volunteered to help organize our volunteers. And so you may be getting a call from Kathy to help organize the people who are going to help, uh, um, uh, not just with that, but with a public outreach we're going to do in October. That's what Kathy's going to help us with, which is our first public seminar, which is going to be called um, Modern Medicine, Biblical Technology, and Your Brain. And we've already reserved uh, the, um, the forum at the um, Trade Center downtown on October 13. It's going to be an all-day seminar, and we're going to make a new DVD set uh, from that all-day seminar. We also have already produced a DVD set, many of you have seen, and this is free and available to share for ministry for those who'd like it. We've also contacted, how many have read the Fundamental Focus magazine? Okay, it's really, really, really well done. This version is written particularly for Adventist folks, but the truths are the truths for Christian folks. And so we've contacted this group that made this and asked them if they could just make some small edits and make this uh, appropriate for all Christians and not just Adventists. And they've agreed to do that, and we're going to be purchasing 20,000 of those uh, that our ministry will have here in the next few months that you can use to share with any Christian friends that you'd like to share with. We also, our class and our board has voted to start and develop our own Bible study guides. And so we're going to have Bible study guides like these in the near future uh, that will not be dated. There will be just lesson one, day one, lesson two, day two. So you, people can use them at any time. And they're going to all, whatever the topic will be, it's all going to emphasize the truth about God's character in the setting of the great controversy, regardless of topic. And we have the first four principal contributors have already uh, started their work. We have a professional editor, Charles Mills, who will be our editor for these. We've got uh, graphic designers. We've got professional layout people. So we're going to have really nice uh, study guides here before the year's out that we're going to be able, and we'll just build a library of study guides. Um, I'm just trying to, to uh, oh, books, Dr. Markham's book, The Ultimate Prescription. How many's read that? Yeah, it's a great book, and it shows through the, through the life of a cardiologist and a cardiac patient, God's testable laws, the laws he built life to operate upon, and how we operate in harmony with those health comes. Now we violate those, and ultimately leading back to a relationship with God. Um, uh, my new book, uh, Change Your God, Change Your Brain, How Your View of God Changes Your Brain, will be published by InterVarsity Press late this year. But the Lord has opened a lot of support for this book. Uh, I don't know if you know Dr. Larry Crabb, who is an author of multiple Christian books, um, a speaker, um, psychologist. 
him, Dr. Michael Lyles, a Christian psychiatrist and board member of the American Association of Christian Counselors, Dr. Tim Clinton, founder and president of the American Association of Christian Counselors, Dr. Greg Jantz, author and more than 30 books, president and founder of A Place of Hope in Edmonds, Washington. All of these guys are going to be writing endorsements for the new book. So we're very excited about all the support that are coming from this. Um, we also have web cards out there that you can share that we're making available. Um, we can invite people to come, and I know many of you have brought friends to listen online or to, to be part of our class. What else can we do that we're not doing to help spread this message? Do you see how the Lord is blessing and opening doors, though? It's very exciting. We are very excited about what's happening. I've met several people from the church that when they find out we're going to this class, they say, well, what do they teach there anyway? We've heard this, and we've heard this, and we've heard the other thing, and it's always wrong. So, so there's a lot of misinformation out there, isn't there? It's good to, they appreciate that I set them straight. You know? The second paragraph in Sunday's lesson along these lines says that the, the member is to be, the believer are to be equipped for ministry. So the question to you all, what can we do to help equip you for ministry? Is there anything that we can provide, any assistance, anything we can do to help prepare you to make you more comfortable in sharing and opening avenues to take this message forward? Because if we don't do it, who's going to do it? And, I, and as you think about that, and I really would like to see if you have any, any real answers, I'd like to hear them. As you think about it, what gets you more excited? Sharing this message with somebody or talking about your favorite football team just winning the Super Bowl? Do we get as excited about this message as we do about our ball team in the World Series or the National Championship game? Or should we? We should. Why don't we? Yeah. And, and what can we do as you think about, do you have passion, do you have interest? What can we do to help? What stands in your way? Yes. Sometimes I kind of flounder when it's um, somebody who's brand new. You know, they don't know. Um, I work in the hospital, right? And we get gunshot wounds a lot. And you want to say something something to those kids, but I'm never sure how to approach it. Or do I approach it at all? Or do I wait for them to, to ask me? I mean, I'm kind of floundering in there, and I'm never really certain what to do. Uh, with, during the gunshot wound victim? No, as a patient's recovering. And how much time do you have? Not a lot. Well, you know, I, I've always felt comfortable asking those questions because part of recovery is not just a physical recovery. It's a mental and spiritual recovery. Hey, when you got shot, were you afraid you were going to die? I mean, who wouldn't be? Right? What do you think would happen if you would have died? What do you think happens to people when they die? That, that opens up the avenue right there to that question. And they say, well, I just think it's over and there's nothing after this. Then what do you say to that? You go, does that bring you peace? Have you ever heard that uh, other ideas besides there's nothing? Have you ever, anybody presented something besides that? And they'll go, well, yeah, but I don't believe in God. Well, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And they'll tell you something. You go, good, I don't believe in him either. Have you ever heard of another God? One that's worth believing in. So... Yeah, I think that's a very, very, I, I think a gunshot wound victim would be a very easy person to open this conversation with <laughs> because their life just got flashed before them. And if they say, well, I believe he goes straight to heaven. And what's heaven like? Who runs heaven? How is it that you get to go and some people don't? What happens to those who don't go? How does God treat those? 
Would heaven be a fun place to live if, if you had to spend eternity listening to the cries of your child who's burning in hell? Yeah, I mean, you can really, I mean, just, just a little thinking, a few questions, you can really open what these questions are designed to cause cognitive dissonance, basically. Um, cause them to think, whoa, that doesn't really fit, does it? Yes. Also, just being that loving and lovable Christians, I, I think as you age, you begin to feel less and less capable of having a huge ministry, so to speak, but learning to just be that comforter or that good neighbor or someone who smiles at the lady who checks you out at the cash register when you're not in a good mood yourself. I mean, there's just so many things that if if Christ has changed your life by giving you that peace, it should be a natural... Absolutely. Habit. Beautifully said. And I want to merge what you two just said and say this. When you're having the conversation and you're trying to raise people's uh, ideas, stimulate thinking, challenge some construct they may hold, you want to ha- do it with that attitude that you just described. That, And this is really going to win more people than anything. When they make it clear they don't agree with you, that you give them grace. You say, that's okay. You don't need to agree. I love you just as much anyway. But if you have the attitude, oh, well, if you don't agree, you're going to burn. You're going to get the mark of the beast. You better agree. Okay? That attitude will just shut everything down. So it's, I agree. Put that together with that loving heart and then the truth together. Present the truth in love, leaving people free. Wendell. I think we are often too hard on ourselves and expectations for what we can accomplish with our ministry. I think we have to leave that to God. Because, I mean, here you had Christ himself for three and a half years was in constant contact with 12 individuals and not a single one got it before he died. It was only later, wasn't it? It really was. The light bulb went on later. So if we can be ministering spirits to those who need us... So I, I love what you're doing. He's clarifying a boundary so we don't get... See, this is where the devil can trick us with a little lie. What we're responsible for, what we're not responsible for. We're responsible for governance of ourselves. What we will say, what we will do, how we will live, what we will witness, what we will share. We're not responsible for how things turn out, how other people respond, how other people react, what other people understand, what other people comprehend. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to present the truth in love and set others or leave others free. And that's what you're saying, isn't it? Well said. And we cannot expect them to bring them to the place where we are instantly. It has taken as described already in this, this, this class period, several years for people to mature into God's grace and knowledge of what he is. Yeah, anybody used to hold a different view of God that heard this message and after one Sabbath school class understood it? No. No, it really does take time to shift paradigms, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, would it benefit anybody if we were to ever have like a let's talk afternoon meeting and we went through some you know, answering the tough questions that people throw at you scenario. Maybe even have some of you come up and role play. How do you deal with somebody as they uh, present an opposite view and are really critical of what you're trying to say and give you practice answering the questions? Would that be fun? He says, yes, let's get started. I saw three people and the rest of you are going, role play? What? Challenge. We have to let you be the one who's challenging us. <laughs> the paragraph states that we are to carry a message of love and grace to the world. Question, how is the message we are carrying different from what every other church carries to the world? Because if you went to any Christian church and said, um, we want to carry a message of love and grace to the world, how many churches would say, no, we don't want to do that? Wouldn't they all say that? So 
how is what we're carrying in any way different than every other church out there? Yes. Often the grace that's presented by other churches is grace of Christ to prevent the Heavenly Father from getting us. Ah, okay. So the grace of other churches is often this kind of protection from the Godfather. Not Father God, the Godfather. There's always an element of coercion. Yes, there's an element of pressure, coercion, punishment. If 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 you should peek around the skirts of Jesus' dress, there the, the thing he's wearing, you peek around, and and the father sees you, boy, lightning will zap you. You ever feel that way growing up? Yeah, Russell. I think we also carry a, a different definition of what love is as well. I think so too. We we seem to integrate much more harmoniously that love originates in God's character, and everything was constructed and built operationally, to operate on love. Love is more than just an attitude or a feeling. It's a, a, a principle upon which life is built. Well, just the idea that love always does what's in the best interest of others is, I think, something unique to, to what we're discovering. And um, you know, it carry that all the way to the, to the end of sin. You know, love will still do what's in the best interest of others. Absolutely. And that's where we can actually bring a beautiful harmony to those who don't come back to a knowledge and relationship with Christ, that he still does what's best for them. Yeah, that's wonderfully said. Yes. Love always does what's in the best interest of all of us. If I do what's in the best interest of you, it's also in the best interest of me. And I think sometimes we lose that aspect. I can only do what's in your best interest if I truly do what's in my best interest at the same time. It, we are so interconnected. It's not about damaging myself to harm you ultimately in the big picture. Love is just the best interest, period. Does anybody have a, a, a question about what she said? I see some puzzlements going on. Anything pop into your mind? I, I, I think she's put a profound concept out there. A profound concept. Love does what's best, and it's always best for us to be in harmony with love. I think there's tr- that's absolutely true in the grand scheme, but not necessarily in the short scheme. Christ at the cross, it was absolutely best for him long term to do what he did. But short term, it wasn't necessarily best. It wasn't necessarily comfortable. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily the moment. Right. And, and some people may put themselves in harm's way for another. And in the short-term life on earth, it might not be best for their earthly life to you know, put themselves in harm's way. Uh, might not be. But in the grand scheme, it always is best to, to live that life of love, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. But sometimes it's hard to see, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yes? Another difference. Uh, Russell mentioned the definition of love. Mm-hmm. People think of love. But... You know, and here we talk about how all of God's attributes right. stem from love. They're not love in plus. addition to love or separate from love. They are expressions of love. So they take the justice and the mercy part and separate it and make it, you know, love plus justice instead of justice resulting from love. Yeah, well said again. Thank you. I, you guys are really, yes, way in the back. Great, great points. Um, there's a, the church has addressed health issues in the past and focused on smoking and drinking. 
But to me, a health issue that's really big and not a, not uh, attended to is stress yes. and um, hypertension and heart disease and all the things that go with it. And one movement that's addressing it is the New Age movement with their meditation techniques and the yoga and all this stuff. If you go there to, to try to help your blood pressure instead of taking pills, then you're asked to start communing with the rocks and, you know, uh, believing in some nebulous goodness out there. And it seems like so much of what we understand is in the Psalms, it's in the New Testament, it's in the Bible, but it's not formatted to be transformational. When we talk about the change, uh, when we talk about the knowledge of God being good, it's head knowledge. And unless it becomes heart knowledge, it's not transformational. We don't know how to put these things into practice. I don't think anybody's written a book that I know of to put this stuff into practice to actually transform and reduce stress in our lives based on that knowledge. You know, I think that's very well said. And I think that um, um, for those who are interested, if you'd like to, I'd make this available to you, uh, myself and uh, Mr. Um, Kakto Yip, a uh, former Zen Buddhist who is now a Christian. And I wrote a paper recently that's now being evaluated by Ministry Magazine. And potentially, well, they'll decide whether they're going to publish it or not. Um, on traditional um, Christianity's losing battle with Eastern me- meditation techniques, and um, why cr- traditional Christianity will not win that battle, and why only a, what what I would call biblical Christianity, what we teach in here, can win, goes through a lot of brain science. What happens in the brain when you do Eastern meditation? The differences between Buddha and Christ, and what uh, what the traditional model is, is teaching about Christ, which actually adds to stress, anxiety, uh, the stress p- pathway, the inflammatory cascade that Christians uh, across the, the history of Christianity, uh, traditional Christianity, have, have struggled with, and why this other view of God actually does help us with stress and help us uh, have a healthier both mind, character, and, and physiology. So um, if you guys are interested in that, I can make it available for the class to, to look at if you'd like to read it. Um, I was kind of waiting to see whether ministry was going to publish it, and um, so we'll have to kind of keep it amongst ourselves. Um, but, uh, yeah, if you're interested, I, I can just let me know, and I can get you a copy. Um, but I think you've raised an excellent point, and we're looking at that, and I think after this comes out, we want to uh, push that envelope, because this is an avenue, actually. When you actually compare, when you read this, this is another edge, another wedge that, uh, in the, in, uh, that undercuts the traditional teachings uh, and, and shows why the, why the Eastern uh, meditation techniques are making such huge inroads. And they're not only just making inroads, much of Christianity is embracing the Eastern meditation techniques and what it does to the mind and how it's not actually healthy for your brain over the course of time. So, um, as we talk about um, this message about God and, and how, how the message we have can present truth and grace, love and grace in a different light, there, I thought there was particular doctrines. Doctrines are helpful as they inform us about God. They're harmful as they obstruct our view of God. And I, I just listed a few that I thought were very helpful, some of you already mentioned them, in seeing God more clearly. The law, understanding his law of love helps me see God more clearly. Understanding God as a creator rather than an evolutionary um, um, you know, mechanistic uh, being. Um, as Jesus, fully divine. If you take the divinity away from Christ, you undercut your ability to see God. 
So um, those, those organizations that want to do that, they diminish our ability to see God. God is willing to sacrifice a lesser creature, but he's not willing to sacrifice himself. Jesus is the holy God. Uh, the Trinity, uh, the, the triune uh, experience of love uh, helps me understand God. The nature of mankind not possessing inherent immortality uh, helps me see elements about God and his nature. Um, the healing model of atonement uh, versus some other views. And what happens in our model to the end of sin and sinners? Uh, all these things inform me about God. Um, oh, my battery, huh? Okay. Yes, it's red. Okay, we're green. Uh, doctrines that seem to make it harder to see God. I, I threw some out. Maybe you guys have some of your own. But if Jesus is not fully God, it, it, it changes everything. Um, Jesus died to pay our legal debt. God requires appeasement or payment in order to forgive. God uses his power to punish and torture those who disagree with him. Man is immortal and will burn forever in hell. I mean, these ideas seem to make it harder to see God in his true character, doesn't it? Any, any that you particularly struggled with that, that was a barrier that, that kept you from seeing God? Yeah, God's law is an imposed law. Thank you. That was actually there and I missed it. Thank you, Russell. Yeah, it should have been at the top. Yeah, it should have been at the top. Yes, let me ask you this, this guys. Let me just a quick question. Which makes it harder for you to, to really see God's true character? God is uh, has an imposed law and must punish sinners and Jesus died to take our punishment and God punished him in our place this idea or Sunday is the Sabbath which actually makes it harder to see God which one do we say is the big barrier as an organization and I'm not saying Sunday is the Sabbath I'm not saying that I'm simply saying that there's that while we point this this is this, this the problem this is the barrier this is what's going to keep people uh, we promote this other view of God that really darkens people's minds. You had a hand up, somebody, somebody saw a hand. Yes. Well, I was just thinking about the, the third angel's message, uh, which is about hell, and which is particularly our message to the world. Uh, and if we understand that correctly, then we can give that message to the world correctly. But if we don't, the way we traditionally understand it, we're given a false message, and it's, it's hard to understand God then. Well said. Well said. In the uh, last paragraph, it says, Jesus is not simply ordering us to be servants. He is leading us to understand that a servant ministry is the result of our connectedness with him. These ver- verses describe the life of the person who has fellowship with the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. They also affirm that to be in Christ is to uh, continue his ministry. What's the difference between a serving friend and friendly service? Is there? Understanding. Understanding, yes. Oh, perfect. So Jesus said in John fifteen fifteen, I no longer call you servants because the servants do not know or understand their master's business. I have called you friends for everything I have learned from the Father I have made known to you. So did Jesus say in this verse that they were not to serve? Well, he didn't say they were not to serve. So what's the difference between the servant and the friend? What's the difference between the servant and the friend? Say friend knows their master. The friend knows their master. Friends understand their master. Servants don't. And so servants will say, well, 
God said it. I believe it. That settles it. The master said, do it. We're going to do it. We don't understand why. We won't ask questions. He says, jump, we jump. That's what we do. Friends actually seek to understand their master. They'll ask questions to get better understanding, not to be insubordinate. Um, They're concerned for the health and welfare and the good of the master. If they're a friend, aren't they? Servants actually don't consider what will hurt the master. They consider what's going to, whether they're going to get punished or not for not doing what they're told. Friends will risk punishment even in order to protect the master. Abraham was a friend of God, according to Scripture. And when God came to destroy Sodom, what did Abraham do? God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Burn him, burn him. No. He not only argued, he said this, How can the, sh- shouldn't the Lord of all the earth do what is right? Imagine saying that. That's what he said. And he's described as a friend of God. He took, talked him down from, from to, to 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Talked him down. Lord, just, yeah, he's a friend. How about Moses described as a friend? I'm going to wipe out these people. Moses said, how can you do this? What was, and he argued with him. Take my name out of the book. Described as a friend. What was Abraham's concern? What was Moses' concern? You see, this is friends of God. And I'm going to give an example and get your question. Anybody see the movie, the old classic, It's a Wonderful Life? Remember It's a Wonderful Life? Remember in the beginning, George, when he's little, he's working in the pharmacy shop. The pharmacist just gets news that his son was killed in the war. And he's distraught, and he's upset, and he's distracted, and he has a prescription to fill. And he puts the wrong medication in, remember? George is just like a teenager. And George realizes what he's done and tries to tell the pharmacist. And the pharmacist hollers at him and says, Deliver it, boy! Deliver it! I don't have time for this! And George tries to tell him again, and he smacks him and, and, and causes his ear to bleed. And this caused a permanent hearing injury in George. And George still persisted. I think you've made a mistake. You've made a mistake. And so the guy tested it. And it was. It was poison. It would have killed the person. And, and at that moment, he hugs George. He said, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he pets on him. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Was George in this story just a servant or was he a friend? You see, this is the difference between servants and friends. Just a servant, just an employee, uh, he's going to go and do it. Okay, it's on you. You messed up, it's not me. I'm going to do what you said. Boom. The friend, the friend questions. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. I think that there's this subtle nuance that we're only comfortable with a distance between us and God. And I think God is trying to change that doctrine, that ideology in our mind. He's grooming us to sit on the throne right beside Jesus Christ. And we have a very difficult... When I talk about that concept to people, they're almost offended. But God wants us to understand the only difference between you and me, the distance, not difference, the distance between you and me is in your mind. I want you to be part of the administration. You're going to be you're going to rule with me. And we really struggle with that. Do, do you like that vision, what she's saying, everybody? Yeah, isn't that cool? Why do so many people insist on servant mentality? And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, they're, they're well-named, I won't name anybody, well-named, well-known, well-renowned people in, in our church who are adamant that we are to be servants, not friends. Easier. Mm-hmm. Takes thinking out of it. Takes no responsibility. Mm. Why does Christ, as the lesson says, not just simply order us into service? Why does he not do that? 
What would happen if he did? What happens to love? Yes. Love only exists in the atmosphere of freedom. He can't order us and also have us love him. In the back. Well, then at the same time, yes, we are to have this close, close relationship with him. But how do we reconcile our buddy old old friend with the majesty of heaven? Because at the same time, he's still a king. And and it's it's putting those two... Because I think so much of our society has gotten so relaxed and so flippant about respect that I agree with you wholeheartedly that he is our best friend. However, he's still the king of heaven. You want to comment to that, yes? Yes. Um, I think sort of close to servants, but I think we're more like bodyguards because we get to stay close to Christ. We're working with him. And um, also... We get to protect his name. We get to protect his reputation. And we're very close to him as we work with him. And so I think it's a lot like being a bodyguard in a way. Back to your question, um, how is it that we can keep from getting what you might suggest too familiar? Well, what is our admiration, our awe, our respect for God based upon? His love for us. His love for us or... Or our awareness of who he really is. And is it true or false that as we come into closer, genuine knowledge of him, we will know him better? And as we know him objectively and subjectively better for who he really is, given who he really is, will our admiration and respect and awe be going down or be going up eternally? Seems to me it's built into the equation that the closer we become friends with him, the more we will admire, respect, and be in awe of him because of the reality of who he is and who we are. I don't think there's a, I, I think the question which has been thrown at this group by people who criticize the friendship approach is a, is a false question that denies the reality of, of, of what happens when you get to know God for who he is. It's built into the, the consequences, it seems to me. What do you all think? Those who would get, develop a flippancy towards Christ, a familiarity and flippancy, uh, as they get to know him, really don't know him. They're knowing the false Christ. Yeah. Um, think about your children. When they're small and immature, they often may do things because they're told to do so. And we have to, in their immaturity, give them directions to tell them. They don't really understand why, even when you try to explain it. They often will not understand because they don't have capacity or comprehension yet to understand. But would you be happy if your children stayed at that level forever? No. No matter how physiologically they got, would you be happy if they stayed at that level where they simply came to you, Mommy, Daddy, I don't want to disobey. I want to do what's right. You tell me what to do. I will do it. Should I wear the pink or the blue outfit today? Would this make you happy for your adult children to do? God does not want us to have servant mentality with him. And so... When we understand all this, we understand what God really wants is he wants us to be his friends. Monday's lesson, first paragraph. Sometimes we are sent to reap where others have turned the soil, sown the seed and watered the crop. Uh, And it talks about this idea that we are oftentimes evangelizing and working in in fields and places where others have gone before us. The thing that popped into my mind, do you ever find that you're working to undo the work of others? When patients come to see me in my office, sometimes they'll come on four, six, eight, sometimes ten medicines. 
diagnosed with conditions I don't see the criterion met for. And before I can actually start helping them, I have to start undoing things that were done, removing medicines and things that people are on before we can start going in a different direction. Do you find that, that sometimes we're working in fields that have had a lot of distortions about God planted in? Yeah, I do too. I find that often is the case, yeah. And what kind of ideas close minds and prevent the truth from penetrating? When you're trying to plant seeds of truth, what kind of ideas, what kind of belief systems close that? Well, here's the things. I wrote down some things that are obstacles to our success in sharing the truth. Rumors and gossip about the person bringing the gospel. Paul, they spread rumors. If you read the New Testament, they spread all kinds of rumors about Paul constantly to misrepresent him so that when he went to the various churches that he was working with, they wouldn't have confidence in him. They tried to undermine him by misrepresenting him with gossip. Do we ever struggle with such things today? So this is an obstacle. I have found that there are people who won't even listen to what we teach because they've heard a report from a church authority that we teach contrary to the doctrines. Because they've heard that report, that's a rumor, they won't even think or evaluate the evidence for themselves. Their minds are closed. So they won't listen to me, but they might listen to you. As long as you don't mention me. <laughs> so don't mention me. You're not preaching, as Paul said, you're not preaching Apollo, you're not preaching Paul, you're not preaching Peter, you're not preaching Tim, you're preaching Christ. So don't need to mention me. Belief that uh, truth is determined by feelings rather than facts. If somebody believes that they'll know what it's true when it feels right, is that an, uh, what does that do to their ability to understand and comprehend truth? It closes it down. I see this all the time, too. Well, it just doesn't feel right. Well, if you've held to another construct your whole life and truth comes in, the new truth actually can often feel very unsettling in the beginning. Very unsettling. Very uncomfortable as it comes in. Um, Belief that the truth was discovered by the reformers and we only need to hold what they knew. Hold to what they knew. The Jews in Christ, they believed they had Moses and the prophets. We got Moses and the prophets. That's the truth. We don't need this light Christ is bringing. You see this attitude? Shut down. I know some right now today have said about our group, we deny what, what Martin Luther and the reformers taught. And therefore, uh, we need to hold to the reformers. Yes, we need to hold the 500-year-old ideas. Try that in medicine. Go to a doctor who's practicing medicine 500 years old. Or any other field of education. Truth is unfolding. Our concepts, our understandings, our, our insights, our knowledge of God, he's infinite. We should never stop growing. So this idea that we need to hold to old ideas is, is a barrier to, to growing in, in the truth. I find the uh, belief that somebody you love and care about couldn't be wrong. Well, Grandma was so sweet and she was so kind. She, she always believed this way. She couldn't be wrong. Do we find good people, good people, good hearts, oriented to do right, can still have erroneous concepts? Sure. Yeah, we're human. We're finite. Only God is, is perfect. Um, belief that God's law is imposed. That idea... That idea obstructs so much light from coming in. I know, for instance, uh, my wife and I were talking last night about Graham's ministry, and Graham has worked for, uh, worked for decades in our church presenting the truth about God's character of love. And he was pre pre presenting this truth to many people who believed and operated through a lens of an imposed law. 
And they could not get their mind around the things Graham was teaching because they still held to an imposed law construct. Even though they liked Graham and speak kindly of him, the person, they couldn't seem to grasp what he was trying to say. And this undercuts so much ability to move forward in the truth if you hold to that idea. Do we actually need more workers in the field of the Lord, so to speak? More workers out there sharing the message? Do we? So why are we not having more workers? What can we do to inspire more people to join? Well, I want to ask all of you at least to be our prayer partners and pray that the Lord will continue to open because we see him working right now. Lots of really cool things are happening this year. In fact, lots of cool things have happened ever since we, you know, we we were graduated off campus. <laughs> I think a, a, a lot of a lot of times people are um, uncomfortable with presenting the God that they understand the way they understand Him to be, because it, it there, there's too many things that aren't reconciled in their mind if they if they have a misunderstanding of God, so they're afraid to go out and tell somebody about that God. I, I, I would agree. And so how, do we to agree we can help bring cohesion, unity, where they can see all the pieces fitting? Yeah. It's hard to share something when all the pieces don't fit. Yeah. Um, Tuesday's lesson. It says, The local church is not simply a number of disconnected people who sit in the same building for a couple of hours uh, once a week. According to Scripture, the church is a group of people who are as closely joined as are the parts of the human body. Possibility, uh, the possibility does exist, however, that people can meet together regularly without being part of the body in a biblical sense. Um, what do you understand the church to be? How does one become part of the biblical church, the biblical body? When Martin Luther was excommunicated by the church, from the church, in his day, was he no longer a member of the church? Or were the church authorities who excommunicated him the ones who really were not part of the body of Christ? If someone today is not affiliated with a particular denomination or group, does that necessarily mean they are not part of God's church? Where should our loyalties be? To Christ and his kingdom or to a denomination? Is that a hard question for some people? But does this mean we should not belong to a denominational church? Just because that's true, does that mean we shouldn't have denominational Affiliations, yes. Christ said that the world would know that we were his believers by our love, not by our doctrines. Or our affiliations? Or affiliations. Yeah, yes. But I still think that it's really important to maintain that affiliation because they need us. And Jesus went to the synagogue every Sabbath as long as he was on earth to preach and teach. That was my question. So, so I think we need to be out there helping those members to understand the truth. So one of the ideas that obstructs the movement forward of truth is the idea that being in Christ's church is being part of a particular denomination. That idea actually distorts things just a little bit, doesn't it? That our first loyalties are Christ and his kingdom, and then joining a denomination, organization, um, as I said here, uh, it can have benefits, can it? Benefits of being involved organizationally together. And, and we're called that be organizationally unified. Um, could our ministry, that we're, all the things we talked about today, could we do as much if we haven't joined together to work together? No. If it was just me and Dean, well, you know, we, we wouldn't nearly do as much as with you guys. You guys have helped us so much. 
And we're going to do more because I can see in your hearts that many people are excited to share this and we can reach so much more organized together. The lesson suggests we need to unify in our evangelism on um, certain points of witnessing. And so I wondered, wondered, are there doctrinal points upon which we must unite? And if so, what are those points? You know, doctrines aren't necessarily important, but are there doctrinal points that help us in our experiencing of God's love so that we can love each other more effectively? Are there doctrinal points that would obstruct our ability to experience God's love and thus we don't love each other as effectively? Yes? God, he created man so that man is not... It wasn't good for him to be alone. That's true emotionally and spiritually. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not good for us to be alone. We need to be in unity. So I just, I'm gonna, we're gonna run out of time, so I'm gonna try to hit these real quick. Points that I think that helps us to be in unity. If we understand the truth about God's character of love. If we disagree on that, then we aren't presenting the same God, are we? No, so in order for us to be as effective as we can as a group, we need to have harmony on as we see God's character of love. Also, the law of love we talked about, which is an expression of his character of love. Um, the truth about what Christ accomplished for us. How do you, what are you going to tell people that God has done for you through Christ if you don't know what God has done for you Christ? We have to have that, not, not both intellectual knowledge, but that experiential knowledge. We need to experience Christ in our life to be able to share Christ with others. Um, the truth of God's calling for each of us. Do you realize you're called by God? What are you called for? Think that through. If somebody says, what, is, what has God called you for? There's an answer for every one of us. There's one answer that's true for all of us, and there's specific answers that might not be true for all of us. Um, the truth about our condition and God's solution for it. This is, this is I think, the, 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 the nuts and bolts elements of what we can share with people. Um. In Wednesday's lesson, I'm going to hit a couple points in Wednesdays and Fridays before we close. Wednesday's lesson, it, uh, in the first paragraph, it says, um, Therefore, when a church considers witnessing and evangelistic strategies, mem- members must feel strongly that they are working together with God, who motivates, directs, empowers, and gives the increase. And, and that, you know, as a psychiatrist, that sentence just kind of flew at me a little bit, and maybe I'm over-reading it, but is there a difference between feelings strong feelings and truth. If somebody doesn't have strong feelings they're working with God, does that necessarily mean they're not working with God? You're only working with God if your feelings feel like you're working with God. Um, are feelings a good barometer? Pardon? Those who feel they are working for God are sometimes working in direct opposition for Him. Yeah. Think of some of the things done in God's name throughout history that people had strong feelings about. Yeah. So, I'm going to suggest that feelings are a very bad barometer. It says in James chapter 1, no one should say God tempts because God doesn't tempt anyone. Each one of us are tempted when we're drugging away and enticed by our own evil desires or feelings. Feelings can really mislead us. What is it that we can have confidence in regardless of how we feel? And this is where I think one of the things our class does well is we identify the testable truths. The testable truths. For instance, gravity won't change based on how you feel. The law of thermodynamics won't change based on how you feel. The law of love will not change based on how you feel. God's character of love will not change based on how you feel. God's commitment to you will not change based on how you feel. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and doesn't change based on how you feel. What does change based on how you feel is how you feel. 
(laughs) And if you're not careful, that change in feeling can then change what you think and can influence the choices you make and change your behavior and thus change you. But it doesn't change truth. It doesn't change God. It doesn't change the eternal realities of our universe. Our feelings do not define reality. And this is why the devil plays on them. So I wanted to point that point out. If we have time, we can come back to Thursday. But I want to jump to Friday's lesson. And Friday's lesson, first question, says, how does the following quote relate to the biblical truth of the priest of all, priesthood of all believers? And here's the quote. It comes out of Gospel Workers, page 352. The work of God in this earth can never be finished until men and women comprising our church members rally to the work and unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. First question, as I read that, is this an absolute reality or is it a generally good idea? And what if it were stated in reverse? That it can never be done until the church officers and ministers begin working with the people in the pew. Doesn't she also say something about laymen finishing the work? Yes, she does. And what about this? How about if this statement that I just read were applied to 2,000 years ago when Christ was doing his ministry? The work of Christ will never be done until the church leaderships begin working with him. Or to Martin Luther uh, 500 years ago. Until the church leadership embraced what Martin Luther was doing, the work cannot go forward. Do we have to wait for church leadership to join in taking the message forward? So I I just wanted to point that out, that, that I think it's absolutely true if church leadership would have embraced Christ would have been on board like Nicodemus became on board, if the whole Sanhedrin would have been on board with that, then so much more good could have been done. There's no question. If the church of the Catholic Church would have reformed with Martin Luther and embraced the truths that he brought, so much more could have been done. There's no question. But I'm going to suggest to you that the leadership will not stop the truth from going forward if they don't embrace it. Another question. Is it dangerous to be in a position of church leadership and believe you're there to defend the traditions of the church? And I'm going to tell you, I think that's an unconscious, inadvertent construct that many church leaders have, that they're there to defend the beliefs of the church and hold hold the line where we're at, rather than opening the avenue for growth. And I think that's what happened 2,000 years ago. They were to defend what they did. Uh, think what happened with, uh, with Martin Luther, and if you look through all Reformation, you will find church leaders trying to stop it. And I'm not... Picking at any particular, remember there's Joseph Arimathea, Nicodemus, Martin Luther was a priest, Paul was a, a Pharisee, so God has always had his people in leadership too. So I'm not trying to be, be critical there, I'm just saying it's a dangerous, you need to be very, very careful when you're in that position. And so the final question, how can we as a group reach out in a constructive way to church leaders to help them grow in their understanding when they may be afraid, they'll lose their job if they do. Did I just make that up? No. No. So pray about that this week. Think about all the things that, uh, that the Lord is, is, is opening for us and, and, and pray about what you can do to join in this ministry and how we can become more effective collectively as a team. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to meet and share, and we thank you that you are bringing our hearts into unity with you, into unity with each other. We feel the growth in our compassion and care and and support of each other, and we pray that you will continue to transform us, that they will know that we are yours by the way we love each other.
May you uh, implant your truths into our minds. Make us effective in sharing this, that we can go out and, and uh, take advantage of the opportunities you're open to, opening to share this message with others, and you will be glorified, and this world will be lighted, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.